I'm Jason Lewis. Welcome to Climate Optimus. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. Todd is out this week, but luckily we have our regular guest co-host Thomas here to help us cover today's topic. Thanks for coming on, Thomas. Thanks, Jason. Good to be back. With high gas prices and the war in Ukraine, the Biden administration has been talking about boosting you know, U.S. ethanol production. And, you know, the goal in essence is to increase the amount of ethanol blended into our gasoline. And in turn, that's supposed to help reduce fuel prices for consumers. And so given that push, we thought we'd focus today's episode on the climate impact of using corn ethanol in our fuel. Before we go there, I want to start adding in a new segment called, What Are You Doing to Save the Climate? And Thomas will put you on the hot seat first. What uh, what actions have you done in the last week or so that help address climate change? Well, I guess one of them has been uh, working with an old friend on uh, converting their house over from running a, a natural gas hydronic system uh, over to a, a CO2 heat pump. So hopefully that will reduce the CO2 emissions of this house by probably around uh, 80% or so. Well, exciting, Thomas, to see you taking on something so tangible in terms of climate impacts. I uh, made an effort on the, the legislative side this last week and called both my senators and told them that you know we need to start having discussions about climate legislation again here in the U.S. at the federal level. Um, you know, things as you know stalled out the end of last year, and you know we kind of have one crisis after another that that has come up. But I'm just hoping that you know at some point here our politicians can realize. That, uh, that they can multitask and work on one, more than one thing at once. So for this week's Reason for Hope, wanted to call out the EU is taking steps to phase out cars that run on fossil fuels. And basically this last week, their Environment Committee voted to support having 2035 be the last year that fossil fuel cars are, are sold. And the reason for 2035 is that the EU has has a target of becoming net zero by 2050. And they're assuming basically a, a cars on the road for anywhere from 10 to 15 years. And thus 2035 being the last year where internal combustion vehicles can be sold. And the full EU parliament is set to vote on these climate proposals in the coming months. So fingers crossed, we can see this get across the, the finish line. But you know, I thought that was a positive step. We obviously know automakers are already moving in that direction. But it's good to see the EU really trying to codify that. What uh, what are your thoughts? I think at the the rate of uptake of electric vehicles in Europe at the moment that um, that was going to be a given anyway by 2035. I, I look at the situation in Norway at the moment, and sales data from January showed that 83 percent of new vehicles sold in Norway were pure battery electric. In fact, the Norway government just announced a rollback of their sales tax exemption that they had for electric vehicles because. The uptake has just been so rapid, so I think essentially that's going to happen everywhere else in um, in Europe because it's got to the point now where it, it makes financial sense and people are, are struggling to justify per, the purchase of internal combustion vehicles anyway. Yeah, that's pretty amazing that Norway is so far down the path. I you know I hope here in the here in the U.S. that we can see similar uptake numbers in the next you know three to four years. Yeah, I think once we get over these supply constraint issues around both chips and batteries that we're seeing at the moment, um, things are going to start picking up again. But I mean, really, we're 
we're seeing the main driver of US electric vehicle sales, of course, being Tesla with a between a 50 and 90%, depending on the year, sales growth rate. I, I think you're going to see similar numbers within a few years in the US. Yeah, fingers crossed. Well, before we dig into our discussion of, of corn-based ethanol, I thought we would kind of step back and, and briefly you know, describe what a biofuel is for folks who may not be familiar. So biofuels are you know, alternative fuels that are used as you know, replacements for your typical gasoline or, or diesel and are derived from plant-based sources. In the case of ethanol, it's used as a gasoline replacement. And in the U.S., almost every gas station sells at least an E10 blend, which is 10% ethanol, 90% gasoline. And some even offer what's called an E85 blend, which is 85% ethanol, 15% gasoline, and is run in what are called flex fuel vehicles. Biodiesel, as the name would imply, is, is an alternative for diesel engines, and, you know, this is a little bit different than your, your hippie neighbor that runs their, their old Mercedes on waste cooking oil. These are actually very highly refined fuels that meet all the standards of, of a normal diesel. And, you know, while there are some places in the U.S. that offer biodiesel, it's much more common in Europe where you have a lot more diesel engines. So this kind of leads to the next obvious question, which is, you know, why have the, the U.S., the EU, and other countries you know, gotten into subsidizing biofuel production. And at its core, it's really about having a more environmentally friendly alternative to, to standard fossil fuels. You know, biofuels get billed as, you know, being non-toxic, biodegradable, having fewer tailpipe emissions and producing fewer greenhouse gas emissions. And the reality is whether a biofuel really measures up on those three criteria depends a huge amount on what biofuel you're talking about and how it's produced and what crop is used as the feedstock. And we'll get into that here in, in the episode, but reality is not all biofuels are created equal. So, you know, when we're talking about corn-based ethanol, I thought we'd start out with kind of what are the, the criticisms associated with it and, and whether those are warranted. And Thomas, you want to take us through, you know, some of the major pushbacks on, on corn ethanol? Yeah. Thanks, Jason. I I think the item that's typically at the forefront of most people's mind when they think of corn-based ethanol is uh, land competition and either the displacement of land that was otherwise used for natural purposes or the displacement of food production. So in, in the US, from about 2010 onwards, things have been uh, relatively consistent, but you're looking at about 80 million acres per year are used for the production of corn crops. And of that, about 40% is used to make ethanol. So you're looking at about 9% of the arable land area in the US used for the production of corn ethanol. Which is crazy <laughs> when you think about it in that context. Yeah. And if you didn't take into account the yield increases, which are now absolutely crazy, like you're talking almost four tons of production per acre, without those yield increases, that land area requirement would be even larger. If you roll the clock back to the 1950s, yields were typically less than a third of what they are today. Yeah. That's, that's crazy to think about that much of the US you know, agricultural land being used to, to grow fuel. Yeah. And so th this is a similar situation to other you know, areas around the world where biofuel production, be it ethanol based in Brazil or palm oils or others throughout Southeast Asia, has been competing with you know, both natural habitat and um, you know, displacing 
cattle ranching or other cropping operations that would otherwise be feeding humans. So it's it's definitely something to you know consider when you look at it from a fact that we're only producing a small percentage of the world's fuel requirements using these biofuels and they're already putting a significant demand on the cropping area. So the other the other aspect of it that typically comes to mind is the actual carbon impact of you know growing producing processing and uh, ultimately using these fuels and we all think of anything grown in the biosphere as being ultimately closed loop but we've got to remember that there's actually a lot of energy that goes into the production of the fertilizers which are typically sourced from um, you know natural gas uh, the electricity and so forth used in the processing of the fuels transportation of the fuels and ultimately the lower efficiency when compared to electric vehicles um, when it comes to converting that fuel into forward motion in vehicles. Compared to other petroleum products, there's a a USDA study that is often quoted that showed that there was a 39% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions compared to regular gasoline. But more recent studies, also funded by the US government, um, have more recently found that it's potentially even a 24% increase in CO2 emissions for the manufacturing of ethanol-based fuel. This, of course, has been pushed back on by the ethanol lobby groups, but um, there's there's no big step change when using ethanol-based fuels compared to the utilization of battery electric solutions. And I think that's the most important thing to keep in mind. So, you know, in essence, they're You've got the USDA study saying there's there's benefit. You've got this latest study saying there's actually not a benefit, but regardless, it's it's incremental at best if it is positive. Yeah. And the time for incremental change was decades ago. We we haven't got time left for small incremental changes anymore. We need step changes to get ourselves out of the situation that we've put ourselves in. Yeah, totally agree. So, you know, since we've got so much of the U.S. tied up here in biofuels, I thought I'd ask, you know, what's the situation like down in in, uh, Tasmania? Yeah, so Australia in general is a little less focused on, well, actually, it's less focused on doing so much about uh, climate change in general, but um, the, the, (laughs) the main focus from biofuel production perspective has been the use of uh, sorghum in Queensland. There is a ethanol production facility in Dalby in, in uh, southern Queensland, but the, I mean, there's quite a bit of oil production, but that's predominantly hemp oil, canola oil used for food production and not allocated to fuel. Gotcha. So you know, the third major critique of you know, kind of corn-based ethanol is is the fact that it really isn't that much better when it comes to to air quality. So it's true that you know it creates fewer tailpipe emissions, but it turns out that ethanol, when it's mixed with with gasoline, makes it more volatile, which makes it easier to evaporate. So, you know, even though you're getting a reduction in sort of the emissions that come out of your tailpipe, you have more of the fuel that's evaporating into the atmosphere and creating, you know, more smog. And so bottom line was supposed to be something that really improved air quality. And if anything, it's just an incremental benefit. So, you know, given those three critiques, the next logical question really becomes what are the solutions that we have available to address kind of the problems with corn-based ethanol? And one potential solution is moving away from corn grown on fertile soils and, you know, instead looking to prairie grasses grown on marginal land. 
the beauty of the prairie grasses is they're they're carbon negative because even though you're you know harvesting grass to grow fuel, that same grass is putting roots down in the ground and and storing carbon in the soil, and it doesn't you know displace food production because you're using marginal land. On the production process side of things, there are a couple solutions for ensuring ethanol has more climate benefits. The first is is pretty basic, you know, making sure that the energy that you're using to make the ethanol comes from renewable sources. In other words, it's not a lot of help if you're trying to make a climate-friendly fuel and burning coal to do it. The second big opportunity is moving away from the standard process where you're taking the grain of the corn and turning that into fuel and instead using a process that takes advantage of the entire corn plant, you know, the stalks, the husks, and turning that into ethanol. And this type of ethanol is called cellulosic ethanol. And Thomas, I know you did a little bit of research on cellulosic ethanol and kind of where things stand and and sort of its promise as the ethanol of the future. And I think that was the case you know, back in sort of 2007, there was a future painted for the ethanol industry that it was going to pivot from using those products that would otherwise be used for food production and using more fibrous materials such as wood fiber, switchgrass, corn stalks, et cetera. However, unfortunately, that didn't really eventuate. A number of facilities were built in the US and there were a few built in uh, Denmark, Italy, uh, and other places around the world. But uh, unfortunately, a majority of them have ended up shutting down. It turned out that it was a little more difficult than people hoped and difficult to compete with corn-based ethanol, which... Um, is a pity because it means that these uh, waste products, as they may be considered in some situations, uh, are not being effectively used. It seems very logical that you'd want to be able to use all this plant matter aside from just the grain to be able to, to create your fuel. So, you know, unfortunate that cellulosic ethanol really hasn't taken off in the way it was envisioned. I think it's something that it had a chance, it had its day, and Back at that point in time, battery electric vehicles were considered you know, so far into the future that it was almost a, a pipe dream. The situation looks very different today, um, and it's going to make it much more difficult for um, cellulosic ethanol, if they do make it a reality, commercial reality, to fill that space. Where I do see it filling a space is those higher energy density applications, uh, such as jet fuels, aviation fuels, etc., um, where battery electric is still going to be a long way out. Yeah, that's a great point. There was an interesting example that I came across that kind of illustrates the point between you know electric cars versus standard you know gas or diesel. And they looked at how many miles could you travel on basically an acre of switchgrass. Switchgrass being another one of the potential feedstocks for creating ethanol. And they looked at a kind of conventional gas SUV where you would take the switchgrass, use the cellulosic process that we're talking about, and turn it into fuel. And you could drive that SUV, you know, about 9,000 miles on the highway. Then they looked at if you had an electric SUV and you took that same switchgrass and burn it, so creating electricity from from bioenergy and you could actually drive that that electric SUV about 14,000 highway miles. So, you know, almost 60% more 
out of that same acre of switchgrass. And, you know, the added benefit as well of using that switchgrass and converting it to bioenergy is that you can capture the carbon emissions at that power plant where you can't capture the carbon emissions that are coming out of the, the tailpipe of your car. So, you know, in summary, when we're talking about corn ethanol, the reality is there are better feedstocks, you know, better crops that are available, you know, depending on where you grow those crops, you can have a better impact on emissions. You can, you know, use different processes like, you know, the cellulosic process that we're talking about. Um, But I think at the end of the day, we really have to be asking ourselves, you know, is it, is it worth it to continue on this, this corn ethanol path? or really, you know, ethanol in general when it comes to ground transportation. And Thomas, I know you've kind of already alluded to your perspective, but what are, you know, what are your thoughts? Well, look, I mean, I'll be frank. I spent what, almost nine years running a, a vehicle on biodiesel, um, but that, that was made out of a waste vegetable oil product that even I could see back then was not going to be adequate for everybody. There wasn't enough waste vegetable oil in the world to satisfy everybody's vehicle demands. It was merely seen as a as a gateway drug to a fully battery electric future. And <laughs> that battery electric future is here. It's today. I mean, really, there should be, if, if you have a long-term view when you purchase a, a new vehicle today, there should be no reason for anyone really to be buying um, anything but a battery electric vehicle in most segments. I know it's a little bit difficult in the pickup truck segment, but that is rapidly changing. So I think we we, we sort of need to be treating ethanol a, a bit like um, hydrogen in that we use it for those applications where we need that higher energy density, but let's not waste it for ground-based transportation. In other words, saving it for something like, you know, aviation fuels where, you know, we might eventually have a battery electric airplane, but that's not going to be in the next few decades. Yes, exactly. So came to a similar, you know, sort of position as you, which is that, you know, it it really doesn't seem like it really doesn't seem like it's worth it to be spending all this time and energy to try to, you know, turn corn into ethanol when we only have a finite amount of land available to grow our food or, you know, to produce plants for for energy. And we really need to be thoughtful about how we use that land. And we may have a battery electric plane in in the next 30 years, maybe in our lifetime, which would be great. But in the meantime, we don't have another solution. And so that's where something like biofuels uh, can be a great thing. You know, we need to be pulling a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere. And we all know that plants do a great job of, of doing that. And so something like, you know, growing crops to be able to use them for, for bioenergy, carbon capture and storage, that makes a lot of sense. But spending all this time and energy to create ethanol only to get a very modest benefit at best when it comes to climate just doesn't seem worth it, especially when you have electric cars coming along the way we have. Yeah. I think growing things like corn-based ethanol for uh, vehicle transportation, it it sort of seems to me a little bit like subsidizing farmers to dig holes and then fill them back in again. If we are going to make subsidies available for these you know, these regions of the US, maybe it would be better spent on encouraging those areas to be put back into land restoration and habitat protection. Yeah, I agree. So what do you think we need to do to solve this ethanol situation? You know, I think at this point, trying to 
to get involved in changing subsidies when you've got all these farmers out there growing this stuff uh, is is a political headache to say the least. So from my perspective, it's it's all about you know going the route that of Norway that you highlighted earlier, right? We as individuals have the opportunity to to buy electric vehicles, and so if you're looking for a new car, look at an EV. You know, there's a seventy five hundred dollar federal tax credit here in the U.S. that's still available on a, a number of models, and you know, in some states you can get up to to twenty five hundred dollars off as well. So you know, you're talking about ten grand off the, the sticker price, and you know, I think the other thing that that we can do is lean hard on our senators to pass the EV incentives that were proposed in the in the Build Back Better Act. And for those who aren't familiar, you know, there was basically a, an EV incentive of up to twelve thousand five hundred per vehicle that was part of the Build Back Better Act. And so we'll have talking points on our website, but just want to encourage folks to reach out and and push on our senators to to get these incentives in place because the reality is once we do, it's going to massively accelerate the adoption of EVs and, and we won't need the corn ethanol for, you know, gasoline cars anyway. So any final thoughts, Thomas, on uh, our ethanol dilemma? No, I, I think you summed it up pretty well, Jason. I, I do hope that uh, over time, as we see more fertilizers and things being made using renewable energy and tractors and other farm equipment moving in the same direction, that we can see a reduction in the carbon footprint associated with the production of bioethanol. But as a uh, transportation solution, it's really not looking like it's grown to where it should be over the last few decades uh, in which it's been used. Yeah, agreed. Well, hopefully we haven't thrown too much technical information your way. If you have any questions, as always, you can head over to our website and submit comments there. But thanks for tuning in this week. Come back for more climate solutions, reasons for hope, and ways each of us can make a difference. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast. Oh,